0: Hello, you are listening to The Carrero Podcast. I am Malia Hoffman, and I'm here with Fred Ramirez. Today, our guest is Stacy Hurst. Stacy is an assistant professor of teacher education at Southern Utah University. She has her degree in sociology and elementary education and a master's degree in education. Her extensive experience also includes teaching first grade and serving as a reading specialist. Stacy is the co author of a foundational literacy program and is the chief education officer at Reading Horizons. An educational software company that teaches structured literacy concepts through a blended software and direct instruction approach. Stacy is passionate about literacy and believes that learning how to read well is a civil right. Hi, Stacy. Thanks so much for joining us today. In your bio, you stated that you think that reading well is a civil right. Can you elaborate on this philosophy a little bit?
1: Oh my gosh, I would love to. Out of the gate, yes, the thing I'm most passionate about. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, I just, you know, you
2: think about literacy and, and how critical it is, um, that you
1: know how to read. Mm-hmm. And I, there is so much discrepancy. Um, I'm focusing on the United States right now, of course. Yeah. that Oftentimes become an equity issue. We know there's a lot that goes into reading to knowing how to read that starts before you even get to kindergarten and mm-hmm. some of that has to do with the conversations you have with your parents or how many you know books you're exposed to or even just the idea of knowing the alphabet and in some populations uh, you know parents are just focused on survival right so yeah. uh, that's become secondary and tertiary uh, to keeping their kids alive frankly. And so um, uh, you you can start kindergarten with a huge gap. And then we see that go on. And there are a lot of reasons that people um, may struggle with reading. Some of it could be the type of instruction they're receiving, which I also have a lot to say about.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. um, There are other reading difficulties that happen neurologically, like dyslexia. Um, And if a student is not reading well by third grade, we already know a lot about the future of that student. And if go one way or the other, we know a lot of really successful people who have something like dyslexia, but not all students have um, the luxury of being able to compensate for a need that is so critical to functioning every day yeah. in society. And, you know, I think, too, <laughs> that we, there's so much information available today But still, so much of it is text-based that we can't say, oh, we don't, this is something that we don't need. You know, Mm -hmm. they don't need to know how to read well. That's not true. And if we can provide that opportunity, we know, we do know based on the science of reading what it takes to teach reading well, so students learn it. Mm -hmm. We can do that, then we will help to address some of those equity issues for students who don't have access to text or the yeah. meaning that comes from it.
0: So. so that's really good because, you know, they say that education is the biggest indicator on your, the, like, the amount of money you'll make in your lifetime or whether or not you'll live in poverty. And so just even foundational to education, you're, you're pointing out reading. And it is so very important. And I, I realize it more as an adult when I travel to places where I don't speak the language. And I just think... Like just driving, yeah. for instance, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. I don't know if I'm allowed to park here. <laughs> like, you know, yes. you just take a gamble yes. because you can't read the language. And so to, yeah. to your point, um, everything we do on a day-to-day basis requires you to know how to read. And, and, yeah. and I like how you even pointed out, read well. Um, so It's not just simply being able to understand the words, but to be able to make meaning of it. So it's good. I love that.
1: Yeah, oh, and I understand your um, travel woes too. I know if it if I'm in a country that has a Latin-based language, I'm mm-hmm. much better at reading mm-hmm. than speaking or listening. <laughs> I did learn how to say where is the bathroom in most languages. That's been beneficial. (laughs) It's a very important
0: phrase to know.
1: (laughs) But sometimes I don't understand the answer, so I didn't think that through. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, isn't that true? That's great. I still don't know where the bathroom is. You're just hoping they point
0: and, you know, (laughs) direct you with some body
1: language. (laughs) Yeah.
2: So, (laughs) So obviously you're passionate about this, about, you know, the literacy where did this come from? Um, talk to us about your, about, about your own educational background and how, how did you become so impassioned about literacy? Oh, wow. That is a, a, also another good question. Um, I
1: was one of those students, children, I should say, who it seemed like reading came pretty naturally to me. I was always surrounded by people who were reading. I am a first-generation college student, however, so we also can't make assumptions (laughs) based on on that sometimes. Also, um, my family situation, I, I was raised under the poverty line most of my childhood, and I would actually say that it was access to text and the fact that I knew how to read that expanded my vision for life and and helped me become aware of opportunities that would be available to me, um, even though I didn't have the same luxuries as some of my friends, frankly. Um, so I, that, I think that's where it started. And of course, I think lots of us, when we're young, if we like to read, you start identifying with characters in books that you're reading about and really learning about cultures that are not like your own, you know, the ones that you see every day. And I think that my passion started there. And then I did have time um, to do some service work where I lived in Atlanta, Georgia for a couple of years and worked with inner city populations there. And I saw very quickly that correlation between reading and poverty. Um, And again, we can't always make assumptions with that. But there are some things statistically we do know and understand. So I think that was really, and that was in my, I think it was, I was between 21, 23-ish when I did that. It was really, it really helped emphasize the need for that. As far as becoming a teacher, I taught first grade and then I was a literacy coach reading specialist in my district for a total of 15 years. Um, but I think part of that was I i just felt like becoming a teacher was a developmental stage. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember saying, I want to be a teacher. It was always when I'm a teacher, mm-hmm. when I'm a teacher. you go through, you know, teenagehood and then you become a teacher at some point. So um, I always had a passion for sharing that um, with people, too. So I loved teaching but I'd have to say it would be a combination of my background, and the things yeah. that I
2: experienced um, in my younger life. Hmm. You know, I'm 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 ha- I'm really happy that you that you shared that um, at least with our with our audience that you are a first 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 gen student um, because we, we do have stereotypes um, and and I think the the more that we break out of those stereotypes, the more that we're going to learn. Um, you know, and just and just look at every every single student for who they are, first. Um, so, yeah. Now, how has how has literacy changed due due to the blended on um, online learning?
1: Oh, you know, so that's a really exciting question too. Um, I. we just four of them. I know you really are. I love this. I also love just the conversational format. So you guys are knocking it out of the park. <laughs> um I do so I have a dual roles right now. I am a teacher, of, I'm a professor of teacher education. Um and I'm also the chief education officer at a company that has a software curriculum. We do blended learning approaches. Um which is we the company is 30 years old at least and we've had software for a good portion of that so we have you know some experience when it comes to adding technology to the learning environment but I love that we have this focus on blended learning but I will tell you that as a company our method is really good it's aligned with what we know how people learn how to read Um, And we've been seeing great results with that. But here's what was very interesting. Of course, my passion is going to lie with the beginning readers because that's my background. Sure. But um, I noticed that we would have teachers respond really well to that method and they would embrace it and teach it directly in their classroom. But there was always some reticent with those, especially with those early grade educators to adopt or embrace the technology that went along with it. Mm -hmm. Even when outlined how much um, more efficient their teaching could be with it mm-hmm. because they didn't have the background. You know, they were still using like overhead projectors in their <laughs> instruction. <laughs> um, actually, there was a school I worked with. They unfortunately had a fire. And the good news was when they rebuilt the school, they replaced everything with brand new technology. I I thought it was like Disneyland, mm-hmm. but all upset that they didn't have overhead projectors anymore. like <laughs> so. Was pre-COVID, so Mm -hmm. I'd say with COVID right now, and of course our company um, has had a lot more interest in it. They're doing pretty well right now, actually, because uh, teachers are being forced to make that change. Mm -hmm. And I think COVID has been a disruptor in that sense. Um, I don't get me wrong; I wish we didn't have to deal with it at all. Yeah. Um, If there is a silver lining, I have great hopes that that is one of them. Mm -hmm. I have concerns about the equity issues we're creating though, because some students don't have access to technology in the same way that others do. But I think by and large, it's helping teachers see the value and merit. And I really hope it doesn't go away. I hope teachers don't just say, okay, good. Now we can get back to, I, I'm hopeful. The teachers I've spoken with and worked with, I think they're starting to see the value the technology is this a software
0: to- that like individual teachers would adopt or is this something that like the school district or like a school would adopt?
1: So typically it would be schools or school districts mm-hmm. um, as of how much it costs, okay. of course, and I don't know if you're aware of it. Um, teachers don't make a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> we are both uh, <laughs> former teachers yes, in sorry. that way.
0: So we are yeah, aware.
1: <laughs> so, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, I think they're, <laughs> yeah. So oftentimes it is a district or a school that mm-hmm. will purchase okay. it. Of course, we provide training and support. Mm-hmm. So that's helpful, too.
0: So as your role as a, an assistant professor um, for teacher education, when, well, let me ask you this. So did your classes go online or are they already online? Um, when COVID hit and like many schools and universities went to the online platform, what happened with you?
1: So all the classes that I personally teach are face-to-face. Okay. Which is kind of Yeah. And it's interesting because I think... Um, Yeah, I mean, just to see how students navigate through that. But this is what our university did require. They outfitted every classroom with a camera. And then we also have to offer every class session via Zoom. And so as a teacher myself, and again, someone who is not afraid of technology, Mm -hmm. uh, I had to adjust my teaching modality because I'm teaching two at the same time. I have students in front of me and joining via Zoom. And then of course, every class session is recorded um, in case the student is ill or something and they have to watch it later. Sure. So I have even learned um, somebody who I felt like, it, <laughs> I, like I said, I'm, it's not my first rodeo. I'm familiar with technology, but it has been um, quite the, I don't want to say challenge because I do embrace it. I love it. I'm learning a lot. A, I think I'm a learner and I love to do that. But it is not as simple as, okay, I'm going to do this in my class and we're going to have this activity and they're going to, you know, practice an application with this. And then I have to think, okay, how are the students who are not in front of me going to do that? And oftentimes in early literacy instruction, you have things like manipulatives that are involved. Yeah. I'm always thinking, okay, now how do we do this digitally or, you know, online? So I think students... What what has surprised me about it, honestly, um, at my university, we are going all the way online after Thanksgiving break. Yeah. So I will only be teaching one modality at that point. But I did poll my students and ask them uh, what they would prefer. The majority of my students would prefer to be face-to-face. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, And I think that is, they're doing, of course, they're surveying students across our campus. And generally speaking, that is the preference. Hmm. And I find that interesting.
0: Yeah. But yeah, that's
1: how we've adjusted to it.
0: So I teach teacher ed students as well. And when they were transitioning from semester to semester before pre-COVID, they had classes that were originally supposed to be face-to-face that went to a hybrid model or went to online. And, and they complained about that. They wanted face-to-face. They didn't like the idea of online. Um, and I think a lot of it is that, that personal social connection and just that comfort of like knowing that you have other people right there next to you that you can talk to. If you, if If you don't understand what the teacher's asking, you can ask your neighbor, um, you know, in the moment without feeling, you know, I guess, like you weren't listening or (laughs) or whatever, you know. But also as a teacher, it's much easier to read the room when you have faces and bodies in front of you. When everyone has their microphone muted and their camera's off and you're talking to blank screens, you're like, I don't know if there's anyone here. Um, Yeah. And you're not... And you're not reading body language. you're not, you know, getting anything. So um, it is oh my gosh, challenging. yeah,
1: I mean, I'm glad you say that. It makes me feel so much better because that's exactly the challenge. And I think the the other interesting thing is even if you do things like, okay, let me back up a little bit. So, as a teacher in an online environment, you have two types of relationships to manage, right? Like it's the, relationship you have with each individual student and I feel strongly that is key that you have it, even in a university setting where you have so many students I try my best to get to know each one individually not as easy as it was as a first grade teacher by the way Mm -hmm. (laughs) as a teacher I would have lunch with a different student every day at the beginning of the school year Mm -hmm. just to get to know them and that was my that was secretly my classroom management (laughs) secret Mm -hmm. yeah have that relationship. It made everything so much easier. Yeah. It's a little bit trickier in this kind of a setting as a professor. The other thing that as professors we have to manage is creating that classroom culture, right? And online, to your point, it makes it harder because they have that person sitting right next to them. Mm -hmm. I will do things in my instruction, like of course, working in small groups and partnering them up and in a classroom, it's easy to walk around and hear their conversations and see what they're saying. But can I tell you, daily when I do this, <laughs> and I I set up breakout rooms and they're paired up and they have all the information they need. And I will like jump in, but you have to go into each breakout room separately, yep. which takes time. And then you get in there and you realize Especially if you paired up students, there's one student saying, oh, uh, so-and-so didn't show up. It's just me. Oh, <laughs> or, yeah. So then you have to figure out, okay, now I'm going to rearrange this. Or you have, you know, they're having some sort of difficulty that you have to address. In meantime, even the students who are in front of you are not getting your feedback. Yeah. And so, yeah, it becomes really challenging mm-hmm. in that sense. Or you'll ask a question online and
2: crickets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, i, love, um, that. I it, love that you know and i'm and i'm also thinking what a great way though to teach future teachers about teaching online um you know be, because you know i'm my my background is in history and mm. the, and the and the last time that our that our nation has gone through this is 1918 and it took three years, you know? And so, <laughs> and, and so one of the things that I'm thinking is that there could be a possibility that this is going to take more than a year. Um, as we're, as we're seeing now. Yeah. And, and so, it's, so one of the things that, that I'm thinking within, within teacher ed, um, maybe this is a you know this is a great way for for all of our students who are going to be teachers to actually learn what it's you know what it's like and if and if they're doing all of these things not showing up to class not doing this not not partnering then maybe that's maybe they need to figure out okay how how can i you know how can we galvanize one another just so that once i start teaching at my first job assignment out there is, is teaching on, on, online, how can I prevent this? And, you know, what are some, what are some skills that, you know, we're going to need in order to make sure everybody's present, everybody is learning, blah, blah, blah. So that's, you know, that's, that's one of the positive things that I'm also thinking about COVID. Um, So
1: you know what? Yeah, to your point. A, I'm a little terrified with this three-year time frame. Yeah, I, I want you to
0: watch your mouth when you talk to us about
1: that. <laughs> Thank you, Malia. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but because I'm thinking this is what we're in October, and yeah. haven't even since everybody went into quarantine. And what was it, March? Yeah. yeah even been a year. It, and it feels, feels like three
0: day. years, though. So maybe yeah. that's what we're
2: going with.
1: So Definitely watch your mouth, Fred, <laughs> because it <laughs> could seem like eight to us.
2: <laughs> Again, that's my history, <laughs> nerdy side coming up. Which
1: makes sense. I mean, generally, I would appreciate that perspective. But I don't know. <laughs> but, I, but I do think with, um, so to your point, it did have to force one of my uh, practicum settings to go online. And I really didn't want my students to miss out. So in this um, reading class that I'm teaching, typically they've had foundational reading before. And so this would be the time that they tutor all semester. And we've had schools in various levels of, you know, access. And so we we can't just assume that anymore. Yeah. And it's done two things for us. So we have set up online tutoring, which has expanded our reach, right? So we'll have students from places other than our university town, um, which has been great. But they have just started that. And it has been really interesting for me to watch um, that that online kind of interaction. And if I'm being honest, which I'm about to be, uh, maybe to my detriment, (laughs) but... As a first, um, as my first semester of teaching, I am in that mode where I'm just trying to stay a week ahead of my students yeah. Yeah. I'm in the spirit That's of full disclosure. So setting up that online, I did get connected with a teacher who's going to be using, who uses the same method that I've trained my students in for the, you know, the lesson plan, to the format of that. Um, but I have not provided a whole lot of support on how to do that. Mm -hmm. They all have some accounts. I know they know how to use them because we've been, you know, in this environment for a while. But it's been really interesting to watch the response. I have some students who reach out to me frequently and say, okay, so how do I set this up and what do I do? And others who are creating PowerPoints to introduce themselves and sending them to their students ahead of time and saying, Mm -hmm. create one to tell me about you. And, you know, they have like all kinds of... um, I guess it's a spectrum of experience sure. and I am curious to watch it in future semesters. I will set that up better for them, but <laughs> right now it's really interesting, but it has forced that. I mean, we did, we wouldn't have even considered doing online tutoring before. Frankly. Right. Yeah.
0: And to, to your point, Fred, with, um, you know, moving kids into the online uh, platform and uh, you know, kind of planning for the unexpected, preparing teachers to teach and to be flexible in this way, to be real, current teachers who have been teaching for 20 plus years, never in their wildest dreams would have imagined a climate like this. Um, And although they are excellent teachers and great at their craft, they're probably feeling very overwhelmed right now. Um, So I think that teachers and teacher education programs right now who started maybe before COVID, who, you know, got that foundational stuff, maybe got into the classrooms and who are now maybe teaching in COVID are probably going to be better prepared than anyone else that we've had, you know, out there. Um, Because so my former students um, that I had before I took this assignment here in Germany started, they did their student teaching in the spring before COVID hit uh, or I should say last (laughs) fall before COVID hit Took on you know online classes and face face classes. Spring went online and now our student teaching again, and our student teaching virtually. So, like we're using oh, now wow, is using yeah. Zoom and zooming into their classrooms or zooming into their students who are also virtual um, yeah. and student teaching in that way. And that's that's an experience that you know no teachers probably ever had, not like this. So
2: well, oh yeah, well not just that, but I'm, I'm thinking the. The student teacher supervisors who who are probably older and have and really haven't used tech a lot now 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 they they have to witness this and go okay what do I supervise and how do I how do I do this so um, which which kind of brings us to to our next question Stacy how do you believe K sixteen education is going to be changing.
1: Um, I hope that it changes, obviously, for the better. Uh, Another thing that I think is brought to the forefront is the need for resources. Um, And so I hope that that helps support it and ongoing. Like I said, I think more teachers are going to be more comfortable using technology than they have been before. Um, And by that, I don't mean they're going to run headfirst into it and embrace it. Correct. I know teachers better than that. But I think, um, and to your point, Malia, and I meant that in a good way because we do go back to what we know. Mm-hmm. I do the same thing, yeah. I'm, I'm not gonna admit that. But I think um, the other really interesting thing, it will be the way that students get used to accessing information, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, timeframes have been changing all over. I In the districts that I'm familiar with, they have everything from 100% online, to online every other day, to one day a week they're online, shortened days so that teachers have time to interact with students virtually one-on-one. And I just think it will open our perspective to consider different options for education. I'm really excited to see what comes of that. Yeah. That's the positive side. And to your point, Malia, teachers are probably generally overwhelmed right now. and We've all shared that we have been um and they are so good at what they do mm-hmm. that that adaptability i think will will probably highlight that even more yeah and it's I looking
0: know. at differentiation at a different level so not differentiating oh, yeah. the actual content and in the instruction but like the way that they access that instruction yeah and i think that it could be to your point a good philosophy that a school could take and and have those options for the needs of those students of that school and have them opt into those, you know, when they enroll into the school. I, I love that.
1: Yeah. Do you know else from my perspective, because I also teach child development classes and I'm a student right now, I have a class that has a practicum in preschool and the preschools in our area are face-to-face. So they're for most of my students are in physically in the preschool but I have one student who didn't even live in the state and she was um, remotely accessing all of her classes. So we were able to set her up with an online preschool. And if you, you know think about the requirements of child development at that stage, everything is very sensory, right? Mm-hmm. So you, online, you've got some limitations where that's concerned. But I do think there are still advantages Um, If you consider as a whole, you know, students are still getting that uh, sensory input. Um, There's still advantages to accessing that information and education online. Again, I think it will expand our view and hopefully um, some really awesome things will come from it. To be um, cautious, (laughs) I worry extremely about... The progress that students are making right now.
0: Yeah,
1: generally speaking, we've had, uh, you know our fall session of um, testing has been going on, and over and over, you know, we hear my students are so far below where they normally are, mm. and the students who've had some access to education. You know, I've worked with entire school districts that when COVID hit, they did not have the resources; they just shut down. Yep, we. We worry anyway about summer slide. Mm-hmm. That, right? It's going to be 2020 then, slide
0: now. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, and if Fred has his way, it'll be <laughs> years of that. So, yeah, it'll be a really big slide. <laughs> but I do, uh, I know research too, educational research has been really disrupted, impacted with that. So I'm curious to see, you know, all of that, how that is going
2: to look. Yeah. So then, Stacy, if, if you were running a school, how would you prepare your faculty for the um, upcoming years? And then, and then, and then with and then with that, what type of professional development would you would you wish for them to have?
1: Oh, I love that question. So I my philosophy is, and it, it is based on a lot of uh, research to back it up. But I think teachers need the right kind of information, right? So they need training that will help them. And and when I say the right kind of information, I don't have a specific method or format that I mean, this is the way to do it. I think generally speaking, my emphasis would be on the scientific method, frankly, because that is what keeps us humble as educators, keeps us from getting stuck in that same, you know, the same thing we've always done. I don't know if any of you've revisited ever your elementary school classrooms. (laughs) opportunity to do that. Um, and I, I went in particular, I was like, this looks exactly like it did when I was in first mm. grade a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, those, it will keep us current. So I would absolutely, um, inform my teachers about the scientific process, what we know currently about teaching based on science, not opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also just ongoing support in that, And I think, you know, it's those two things, teacher knowledge and quality training and materials that align with what we know work. Do a lot of that. I also would look at different configurations, I think, for grades. Like right now we have first grade and second grade and third grade. And I know every teacher you ask uh, specific to reading, especially will say, of course, I care that my first graders are going to be um, proficient readers when they're 18. Of course I do. But the reality of it is, they're they're focused on that school year specifically, right? So I like models that a teacher has the same class and maybe multi grade class over years.
2: Yeah, um, I would explore some of those things. I
0: think I love those ideas.
2: Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's I think that's key, and that's one of the things that um, I know uh, one of the one of the teachers that that we interviewed from Hawaii. One of the things that 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 he's trying to get his his school to rethink is why why when all kids are eight years old they have to know this when if we if if we just look at the research and look at brain research why you know why do males at the you know at the age of ten have to have to learn this when they're not when their brain isn't functionally ready yet um, you know so. So there's so so there there are others out there that are that are really re rethinking this grade level model of learning. Um,
1: well, and you know, Malia brought up differentiation too, and I know we we're talking about maybe formats of of teaching, but think of the implications socially and emotionally when we are holding kids to those standards, right? Correct. Not quite there. So we end up labeling boys as slow or there's not as good readers as girls, which is not true, by the way. Correct. Because if we're looking at them more developmentally, um, then we can meet their needs no matter where they are. And they don't have to feel like, oh, I'm I'm on grade level and I'm not. It doesn't have to be that kind of. a. Now, there are some things obviously we want to watch out for. Um, that would be big indicators of whether or not a student needs extra help or differentiated instruction. So I think those are just all things to keep in in mind. In a in a position like that, I think it would be really cool to think of of those kind of possibilities and what that would mean for students too. Yeah,
0: it's more of a proficiency based. Um leveling up of grade level rather than because you happen to be this age and this is where the grade level you should be in, which is more of a Finnish approach to education.
1: Ah, that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Finland does a lot of things well,
0: right? (laughs) Yeah, they do. So
1: (laughs) I think, too, when we're talking specific to reading, you know, the literacy rate in Finland is on a So as the kids are saying. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) I think... (laughs) Um, actually their, their orthography or their language is very shallow, meaning there's a one-to-one correspondence between the letters and the sounds they make. English is a little more complex. Um, It is still very consistent, but you need to know different things to do that. But one thing that I've noticed about that whole myth of reading levels, I mean, it's the same conversation. Of course, I'm going to relate it to reading, but, um, that's a myth. You can't, there's reading levels depends on who's creating the levels, right? There's mm. not like solid set. This is what a first grade level looks like. This is what Correct. second grade looks like. And so, yeah, I think just expanding our view of that would be very beneficial. Not only the way we approach teaching, which I think would be a really big benefit, but also how students function in that uh, realm,
2: <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. And I've, and I've always thought about that, Stacy. where maybe we make these categories just, and, and I, I think, I think it goes, it goes back to the categories that a lot of the Europe, about, that a lot of the Europeans had on, you know, this term called race, um, where, where it was, everything was categorized in order to Allows some people to be above others, mm-hmm. um, and and I and I think we categorize for that. That might be one of the one of the reasons why, for the reason that some you know some parents out there want to say, well, my kid is here. Um, I think one of the one of the other reasons why we categorize more so now is standardization. I mean, you know, we need to make tests. Why? Because we have companies that create tests, um, and I think the third reason, and and I and I hope that I don't st- step on too many toes, is that I don't think I there's there's some wonderful teachers out there that that would embrace this of of teaching towards every every single learner, but there's a lot of teachers that just don't want to do it you know, where, where, where they just know, th- I just want to teach within this box and that if they're not at this, at, at this particular level, that's their fault. And, um, you know, they're just going to go on. And, and so there's, I, I think there's, there's, there's a lot of things involved with it. Um, where, where kind of like what, what, but what, what you were saying and, and Malia was saying is that if we, differentiate, really differentiate and and meet kids as to where they are, then we could start to move them up. Agreed. And to your point too, so many teachers
1: become really comfortable with teaching to the whole group. It's more, you know, it's time saver. But the problem is that when you get down to it, you you can't assume anything in a whole group. I've been surprised even, you know, students I felt like really had it figured out, have really quality conversations. And then I get to assess them and realize, oh, they can't, they can't access words on a page. Mm-hmm. They're brilliant. They exactly. can talk about concepts all day, but um, they don't know how to decode. I'd have known that if I hadn't taken the time to do that. So, yeah, I think there are a lot of factors that would go into that. Yeah, because yeah, then,
2: and, and, then it's easy for us to look at a group and categorize them you know, say, well, you're all like this, you know, whereas if like, if there's one, if there's, if there's an outlier, we don't, we don't want to think about that because we do want to, you know, well, you're all like this, you know? And and so it's, so let's just categorize you in a certain way.
0: And it's easier to plan for as a teacher and it's structured to plan to the group. Right. Um, And for the assessment piece it's easier to just assess and then move forward and one thing that i always t- told my students is just because you taught it doesn't mean they learned it yeah, so telling
1: is not teaching
0: yeah. and <laughs>
1: told is not taught exactly. and and
0: you said you know they're they're working through their their standardized tests right now like i our last guest said the same thing that they're working they're still going forward with standardized tests I just, I can't believe it. We're in the midst of a pandemic. <laughs> and as Fred pointed out, since, you know, 100 years ago, or, um, you know, like, why is standardized testing right now the priority? Like, why are we focusing on that? We should be looking at how to innovate and teach better to all kids and be equitable <laughs> and make sure yeah. that everyone has access to it. It's, um, it's, It's actually just befuddling to me
1: (laughs) that's a very good question I would love to ask that somewhere that it would make (laughs) a difference (laughs) because I think it would be the funding too right this accountability this idea of accountability correct uh, which is probably driving that yeah Yeah. but I also you know what back to differentiating instruction too it's not as I just really don't think it's as complicated as it has to be. Teachers might feel like it is, right. but especially when you're dealing with, I don't know, students of a, of a certain age group, and I don't even mean like seven-year-olds, but maybe seven to nine-year-olds, there are a lot of things, cognitively, emotionally, physically, that we know about them. There are a lot of things that still could be generalized. But that also that information would help us to know who to differentiate with. Yeah. Um, but that whole idea of just looking at it like that and being adaptable enough to figure it out. I'm teaching my students right now because of my experience um, in the public schools. It's so frustrating to me when I see a teacher who gets the results back and says, "Oh, well, that student's on an IEP." Like, that, that doesn't reflect my teaching. <laughs> yeah. That student is your responsibility first and foremost, right. and I literally have my students repeat that. I mm-hmm. daily say. So let's just say you have a student who English is not their native language. Um, they have some cognitive disabilities, and they're on an IEP. And somebody comes and takes them out of your classroom an hour a day. Whose responsibility is that student and their education? Yours. <laughs> I have it like yeah, mm-hmm. you now they hate it when I ask that. I see the eye roll. Which is what I'm teaching to, actually. <laughs> and when I know your
2: eyes. I know you've got it. I know you've got it. Yeah, because I mean, it could be, I, a, yeah, it could be as as, as simple as, um, you know, I remember in high school, and you know, when a girl would break up with me, I was I was devastated for like two or three days, and <laughs> you, you know, because I'm you know I'm 16 years of age you know, yeah, yeah. and, and, and now I'm being asked to, to take this test, um, you know, and, you know, so it could be as, you know, something where I'm, you know, well, you know, well-groomed kid, I'm, you know, everything is well, but something, something happened. And now this standardized test has, you know, is going to show who I, who I am, you know, yeah. then, that's, that's,
1: that's difficult. Um, well, and I think that's worth looking at, right? I mean, data is data, but unless you know how to interpret it or how you use it ends up mattering. So for you to classify kids and those standardized tests at the end of years, I teach my students like the phrase I actually use is they're an autopsy report. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do yes. after that. You know, it's not right. like we're using that data to inform their instruction. We're just taking it and classifying a teacher, mm-hmm. a stu- the student by, you know, or the, a system. Um, but sometimes in that accountability, the actual education and the student gets lost. Yeah.
2: So, yeah. so what what do you hope to leave your your own your own students with? Or what do you hope that they will learn from you as they venture forward?
1: Well, I hope they learn to keep learning. I hope that they are confident enough in what we've provided them as pre-service teachers specific to the area of literacy instruction. There have been a lot of survey, a lot of research done. I did this for my master's thesis, um, surveying teachers and asking them if they felt like they were prepared to teach reading. What's really interesting teachers in their first couple years of teaching said yes, but then a few years down the road, they were like, absolutely not because they're starting to see that, no, I don't know, I'm not moving the bar, you know, and maybe my first or second year could be because I'm a new teacher. But then they're like, no, I, you know, I need to know what I need to know. So I hope they leave um, confident in the things that we have taught them as an institution. And then I hope they keep, stay curious, keep learning and keep in mind that, you know, we know certain things and, and we can build on that. We adjust when we have, better information so you know it's not to say there's a always going to be the best way Um, we just make changes but we have to be on a solid foundation so I hope they have that confidence and then stay curious and keep learning I love that that's what yeah
0: and so probably coupled up with that question this one complements it in a way where we ask our guests what their call to action is and so this might be to current teachers um, or, you know, future educators. But, what, you know, what's the one thing that you want them to take away um, as they move forward in their craft and teaching our youth?
1: Yeah, I think that you're right. It is related. Um, I would say stay curious, but I would add to that. Sometimes as teachers, we forgot, forget that we need to be modeling what it is to be a learner.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and so I would say my call to action would be to kind of be introspective about that what are you learning like really learning not Mm -hmm. just adapting to uh, what are you curious about it may or may not have anything to do with teaching you know it might be I don't know crocheting Something I've never been able to figure out, P.S., but I'm not that
2: curious about it.
1: (laughs) But somebody might be. So embrace it and then model to your students, you know, what that looks like to be a learner. And going outside, you know, we talk about zone of proximal development. Yeah. Scaffolding. We're adults. We can do that for ourselves. We have control over our learning environments and the way that we interact with them and then model them for our students. That would be my call to action.
0: I like that. And... When I was in my doc program, one of our classes was looking at how people learn. And um, one of our assignments was go learn something new and document that process. Because as adults, we rarely try something new. And so we forget how uncomfortable and how horrible that learning process is and how it makes you feel. And so it's a good reminder as an adult to go back and to be like, this is how my student feels when I'm trying to teach them math or when I'm trying to teach them, you know, whatever, you know, physics, this uncomfortable piece of learning something new is, is how they feel when they're first trying it out. And so it's, it was a good, a good lesson to me and it's stayed with me for years. And I I just, yeah, that's
1: brilliant Mm -hmm. Um, because our own automaticity gets in the way of our teaching. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. though Malia, what did you learn when you did that? What was the thing you did?
0: Yeah. So my, my project was, um, to learn how to swim and, and not that I didn't know how to swim. Like I can keep myself alive in the water, but like, I never really learned (laughs) uh, how to like do the breaststroke with, you know, proper breathing technique. And so I, I hired a coach and I videotaped myself in the pool and, bought a swim cap and some goggles and did the whole thing, totally bought into it. And awesome. I I specifically remember the moment where it just flipped, the light, light bulb went on, where I no, no longer was like just exhausted from swimming one lap because I got my breathing down. Like I could, like yeah. I I still jump into the water with like my nose plugged in, you know, but like um, I think mostly out of habit. But when I swam, like I was just constantly like gasping for breath and I finally like figured it out and I was like, oh, my gosh, that's how you do it. <laughs> and I think, That's so cool. Yeah, and that's what, like, our kids, like, when we're teaching them something, they have that, like, finally, where it just, like, you practice, 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 and then, oh, okay, that's how you do it.
1: <laughs> yeah, and sometimes it's up to us to point that out, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. One thing I liked to do with my first graders, I had them read a book that I would expect them to be able to read by the end of the year, and I recorded them. And then at the end of the year, I played it back. That um, had them re-record it, and then heard, had them listen to the first and the last yeah. one and see their growth. Um, I was really I that. That's really yeah. cool, That's that's cool.
0: Yeah, that sounds good and too. Good so, one. did they see a big like growth in the difference? Yeah, and that it helps yeah. to see like how much you actually grow when you have that documentation of that process. It's um, yeah. the beauty of and the and technology. You know,
1: those, exactly, and those are some of the things as teachers. It is our job to make things explicit, mm-hmm. right? I think that's a really powerful way to use assessment, too, is to yeah. help students realize how much they've learned. Mm-hmm. It probably felt like, I mean, going back to the swimming thing, there were probably times when you were in it thinking, am I even making any progress here? <laughs> but, Absolutely. But you probably didn't know it because you just had the, mm-hmm. you know, you wanted to. yep. Yeah. Have visions of Michael Phelps
0: in your head or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm like half his height, but you know,
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Well, I feel you there. <laughs> uh,
0: great. Yeah, well, Stacey, really this cool. has been amazing. I just, I loved talking with you today. This was so fun. Um, if educators want to connect with you okay, through nice. social media, which platforms can they find you on?
1: Yeah, that's good. So I am on Instagram. I don't even know what it is though. How awful is that? Um, maybe I watched the social dilemma too recently, but, um, email is just Stacy Hurst, S T A C Y H U R S T at SUU.edu. Perfect. Um, I know I spoke to but, um, great.
0: Awesome. Well, this was so fun. Thank you for your time today. And, um, yeah, keep in touch. Let us know what you're working on and uh, again for sure thank you
1: well and thank you this really has been so enjoyable yeah that's cool but yeah I look forward yeah good luck with all that you guys have going on and that you're doing you're making big differences <laughs> thank right.
0: you you as well
1: well thank you so yeah we'll definitely be in touch